this is Annie. And this is Bridget. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Today we're talking about something that I kind of stumbled into because I've been thinking a lot lately about the whole idea that girls mature earlier than boys. And I was thinking about it in wondering if there's any actual scientific evidence to that or if it's just more BS that um, it's expecting girls to take on more responsibility younger and kind of giving boys a free pass. This definitely sounds like one of those things that we just say without any real evidence, you know, along the same lines as women are cleaner than men, therefore women do the cleaning, or women are better at blah, 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 therefore men, you're off the hook. Just one of those easy things that we say never bothering to see if there's any actual evidence to whether or not it's true. Yes. Um, So I went to see if there is any evidence if it's true. And I did find several studies, kind of recent studies, I think 2013, that suggest that female brains do go through neural pruning earlier, which is basically being able to, like, cut out extraneous facts and sort of see that this is something useful Therefore, I will remember this or I will focus on this. And it makes me think of Hermione, Hermione Granger of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows when she says, Ooh, should I do my Hermione accent? Yes, you absolutely should. <laughs> I have to. Oh, no. Actually, I'm highly logical, which allows me to look past extraneous detail, perceive clearly that which others overlook. She even says it in that, like, that cadence. The accent wasn't good. But the timing was very good. I thought it was good. I thought it was good. Oh, thank you. Uh, this reminds me of when I was, I used to um, teach young people. So when I was teaching like a summer program with uh, boys and girls who were all around age eight or nine, the girls would be sitting quietly, like working on their workbooks and the boys would be murdering each other. They'd be, <laughs> ju- they'd be climbing things and jumping off of things. The girls just wanted to sit quietly. Meanwhile, the boys were terrors. And I always thought, gee, I, I know it sounds a bit gendered, but maybe there is some truth to this to this idea. Yeah. I remember in particular one time having what was a useless fight with my mom about how my younger brother got away with so much more than I did at that age. And she said something along the lines of, well, girls mature faster. Like, he's he's not going to be how you were at that age. And I just remember being so angry about it. (laughs) Different rules. Different rules. And also, your mom is basically saying, if you did the things that your brother did, you would get in more trouble. But he, quote unquote, can't control himself. Right. So he kind of gets a pass. It is annoying. Right. And it's, I think when we say girls mature faster than boys, we're not talking about neural pruning. I think what we're talking about is they're more well-behaved at a younger age. And I think that that has to do with what society says is acceptable for girls versus boys at younger ages. And um, I did see more than once that this was an argument so that older men could date younger women. Oh, they'll use... An older guy who wants to date a younger woman will use... I've seen so many things used to justify that that pairing. Not that there's anything wrong with it. I'm no, just saying, totally you'd be not. Surprised the things I've seen to justify why that's a, a pairing that makes that is the most natural. Yes, exactly. Like if that's the, I don't really have a problem with that type of relationship as long as it's it's strange to hear outside society justify it on like a big scale with oh girls mature faster than boys. Same, I agree completely. Yes, and if you're listening to this and you're looking at the episode title, like what? All of this led to today's topic, which is emotional labor. And a disclaimer right off the top, most of the research and discussion about emotional labor that we found was very heterosexual, cisgendered. We'd love to hear from listeners outside of that narrow window. But, all right, let's talk about emotional labor. Let's break it down. Mm -hmm. So it's actually been coming up kind of a lot. If you're someone who spends a lot of time online or in feminist spaces, I feel like it's a a term that we are all sort of collectively thinking, oh, that's the word for it. You can think of emotional labor as the often mental work of caring. And in our society, most of that work, well, it pretty much falls on women. Yeah. 
Um, it can be performed by anyone, but women have been conditioned to do a majority, whereas men typically get to opt in or opt out. They opt in and they opt out. And when they opt in, I feel like we give them, we basically throw a parade. Like, yeah. oh my God, he remembered to do this thing that I do all the time. Yep. Burp, 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 it's like confetti raining down from the sky. <laughs> Meanwhile, where's our parade for doing the emotional labor nine out of ten times, which I think is when it falls to us? A lot of things about emotional labor do tie into things we've discussed a lot on the show. Um, women's fear of being called a nag. Um how even in the most equal relationships, women do seem to do a lot of the managing of scheduling and appointments, kind of house management. Um, and so examples of emotional labor would be asking questions and listening, listening to the response, scheduling things, remembering important dates like birthdays, coming up with gifts, anticipating needs, reminding someone that they are loved, de- detecting a change in mood, patiently allowing someone to vent, a lot of things like that that do sound to me like, yes, these are the things that you do in a relationship. I'm sure for a lot of the women listening, the list of things that you just gave sound like things they do every day without giving it much thought because we kind of have to. We, you know, if you're in a relationship, if you have kids, if you're even in a workplace, these are things that need to get done. And if men aren't doing them, they just sort of fall to us and we sort of just have to pick up the slack and it's not fair. But I don't, I, I, like when I first heard of this concept of emotional labor, it had not even occurred to me. That was the first time that I saw how unequal it was. I guess I'll put it that way. That even in places that are not, you know, romantic relationships, in workplaces, you know, it's like you get somebody a coffee once and you're the person who gets coffee. You plan a birthday, you, you, you buy a birthday card for someone once and you're the person who remembers birthdays. And if you don't, it's you, you know, you're dropping the ball, but why was that ball falling to you in the first place, you know? Yeah. It's like, I never quite noticed how many different tasks that were, frankly, like, not my job yeah. fell to me because it just did. Right, yeah. And there is a huge, a huge meta-filter thread where a commoner put it this way, my partner is deeply and willfully blind in this area. He, like many men, is convinced that engaging in emotional labor is voluntary because for him, it always has been. And I think for women, it's just expected of us. It is. That's why I found this example that another woman shared on the thread to be so interesting. Basically, she was married and her husband handled most of their daughter's ballet stuff, taking her to practice, to recitals, doing her hair, all of that. So then one day she actually shows up to drop off something and she's like, oh, hello, I'm, you know, Susie's mom. And the other people at the studio were shocked. They were like, oh, she has a mother? What are you doing here? If you listen to the episode that we did around role overload, Tiffany Dufu, the author of Drop the Ball, actually talks about this really eloquently in her own marriage that she has an explicit arrangement with her with her husband that anything to do with the social life of their kids is his responsibility. So if it's a kid's birthday party, a kid's dance recital, if it's a social event that's regarding their children, that is his purview. And that people will still send her notes or call her to be like, oh, can your daughter come to this? Can your daughter come to that? And she has to say, my husband handles that. Please direct this to him. And it's just such a strange, it seems like it's such a strange thing for people to wrap their heads around that she's the mom yet she is not the one that they're supposed to contact to arrange all of this. And it does sound like in her particular relationship, it only functions that way because they have an explicit agreement that that is how it will function. It's not functioning that way because, you know, he's just picking up the slack. And so I think that's a really interesting note, which is that if you want to have a more fair split of emotional labor in a romantic relationship, you might just have to make that very explicit and say, these things are going to be things that I'm never going to be concerned about. You need to handle them. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I did want to note, um, partially because I like the term, but also because it's useful to know, um, in extreme cases of this, where one person is in a relationship, the de facto emotional laborer, and the other person kind of feeds off that and never reciprocates, and in fact probably disregards the other person, um, the person doing the feeding is called an emotional vampire. Ugh. 
I don't want to make this a trash your ex podcast. <laughs> I'll just say this. That sounds very familiar to me, mm-hmm. and I'm sure it sounds very familiar to a lot of people. Um, the example I always give is in a in a relationship I had once, the other person, if it was their birthday, I would plan a big thing, a big party, invite everybody, do all the things, buy the cake, get the presents, book the place, decorate it. When it was my birthday, I did the same thing for myself. So it was... It, regardless, it was me doing all the things. Yeah. And that's tiring. Yes. And it's, I, I think it creates a resentment. I think it's not sustainable. I think that nobody wants to feel like everything falls to them all the time and that your duty in a relationship or your role in a relationship is just to dole out support and appointments and reminders and all of that for someone else and for yourself. Yeah. Well, I... I agree in referencing that uh, meta filter, meta filter thread again. Um, I remember reading a comment somewhere in there that um, someone pointed out: no one wants to feel like they're your parent, like they're managing your life. They're automatically going to start to like not feel attracted mm. to you. Then, but that's the thing about those kinds of relationships that that slip happens so fast you don't even realize it. Like. The first, the at first, you're thinking, it's just me making sure they're 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 going to their doctor's appointments. It's just me making sure that the dishes are done. It's just me booking the repair person or making sure this bill is paid. Whatever, I'm here to tell you, you slip into that vibe of I'm the, I'm basically their caregiver. I'm their parent yeah. so quickly that I don't think either person in the relationship really sees it. And it's not until, at least in my case, it's not until someone. It's not until something happens that holds a mirror up to it where you think, my God, is my is this really my relationship? Is my is my relationship really a situation where I'm essentially someone's mom that I didn't give birth to? Yeah. Like an adult. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what? How did this happen? Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think it it's such a gradual thing yeah. that you don't realize it until you you find yourself doing something real out of pocket and you think, oh my God, like this need we need a hard refresh. Yeah, yes. Um uh, one other note too is that single people do engage in emotional labor. Um often they don't come up in the conversation because it is more about relationships. But um studies show that single people are far more likely to care for an aging family member, asked to stay at work more often, situations where emotional labor is certainly involved. Definitely. I mean, that that sounds very familiar right now as well. The idea yeah. that, you know, as the, not just this, not just a single sibling, but like one that is assumed to, I don't know how to put it, but I think in some families, there is a sibling that, I mean, you, you've talked about this in your own experiences that it seems as though your family doesn't is not holding out hope for you to like get married and settle down anytime soon. Yeah. And thus your life is kind of I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah. But thus it seems like your what you have in your life is kind of assumed to be not as important. Yeah. And I've I've experienced that quite a bit that, you know, and I we talked about it on the episode that we did around single women at work. And I actually people people weren't happy with what I said, but I remember distinctly that when I was teaching because I was the youngest pe- person in my in my department and I wasn't married that it was just explicit that I would get the the teaching shifts that nobody wanted yeah. and it didn't matter that at the time I was teaching full time and preparing to to take the LSAT cuz I wanted to go to law school none of that mattered because I was single and that it was explicitly said oh well the people that have families they need to get home and like do family stuff and I agree they do but you know my life also had value yeah Absolutely. Um, there's actually quite a quite a mi- quite a bit quite a many a lot of studies about um, specifically looking at uh, in families where the the single sibling is just almost always the one that has to deal with kind of every family problem that comes up. So. Well, it's because uh, because we have nothing of value in our lives. Sure. Yep. What are you, your cat, your <laughs> Netflix, your vibrator? <laughs> Please. People have real problems, Annie. <laughs> but my Netflix queue is so long. <laughs> Don't you understand? I, mean, I got things to do. Have you seen my DVR? It's so full. It's so full. 
I got I got I got things to do. I don't want to be spoiled. Come on. <laughs> okay. Um, well, the term emotional labor was first used in Arlie Huckchild's 1983 book, The Managed Heart, and it was describing the practice used by bill collectors and flight attendants of keeping your own feelings in check while trying to influence the emotions of clients. And this was tricky, and it was tasked largely to women and low-income workers, and it was unpaid. And Hochschild expressed concern that not acknowledging the work that emotional labor is would lead to resentment, anxiety, stress, and ultimately burnout. But we don't acknowledge that work. No. I've actually seen some radical progressive spaces on the left trying to add financial compensation to emotional labor and saying, you know, if you, you know, we're going to give money to someone and have them be a fellow and their job is going to explicitly be explaining to some dumb guy why what he just said to his coworker was was sexist or helping the boss write an apology email when he when he missteps. Things that largely women and other marginalized folks have had to do on top of their regular jobs for free. I've actually seen some interesting super radical, super super lefty ways of tying that to financial compensation. Um, someone I know, Jill Rainey, they have an organization that's all about funding emotional labor. And so if you need someone to, you know, do something rather than task that out un- unpaid to someone in your organization who most times is going to be marginalized, is going to be a woman, a person of color, a trans person, or some combination therein, pay someone and they will do it for you. Don't just don't just pile that on someone else when they already have their other thing going on. Yeah, yeah. And this, um, the that definition of emotional labor has definitely not gone away. And I kind of thought of it as like service with a smile, um, which is still uncompensated in the workplace, particularly in the service economy. Um, the practice of tipping illustrates it pretty well. Here in the U.S., the federal tip minimum wage is $2.13, and the customer is expected to pay for that emotional labor aspect of it. If they're being nice to you, do they remember your name? Are they personable, approachable, likable, friendly, all that stuff? So we're, as the customer, paying for that emotional labor. Um, And since women do make up a higher percentage of lower-paid restaurant jobs and uh, also uh, most likely to be harassed compared to any industry in the U.S. is the restaurant industry. Oh, we need to do a whole episode on this because it's out of control. It really is. It's so out of control. Yeah, it's pretty pretty upsetting. Um, And uh, the concept of emotional labor is something that sex workers have tweeted about within their occupation as well, how they get paid for their sexual labor, but what about the emotional labor that they're expected to put in on top of that for no money? And I found a lot of articles saying that the on-demand economy should be a part of this conversation as well. So if you think about ride-sharing services where drivers are expected to maintain a really high rating from customers, like 4.7 out of 5, and it's vague as to how they're expected to go above and beyond. It's clear that they're supposed to do more than just drive customers from point A to point B. But gum, water, conversation, no conversation? It's not clear. It's not made clear. Um, and so that's another kind of aspect of emotional labor that's <laughs> still still a part of the like working conversation that we should keep having. Annie, just out of curiosity, uh, when you get into a ride share situation, I, do you want, is a four-star ride the ride where the driver doesn't make chit-chat with you? <laughs> yeah, I, um, I wish there was a, a way to indicate when you got in, like, no conversation, please. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I understand, I completely understand, if you are expected to get this super high rating, you want to seem friendly, you want to make conversation, but I'm usually just tired. <laughs> My brain is like, I can't, I can't make conversation right now, or maybe I'm working and I feel really antisocial and horrible about it. Yeah, it is, it is awkward. I mean, 
I love nothing more than your um, brilliant suggestions for technology that are rooted in your, like, mild antisocial tendencies. This is one of my favorite things about you. Um, I, had a, I had a situation recently where I was in a ride share, and I was going to, I was going to the airport at, at, like, 4 a.m. So already in that situation, I think that generally the person is exhausted and doesn't want to talk. Yeah. And the driver was very, very friendly. But kept asking me, you know, oh, what are you doing? Where are you going? How are you? Yeah. And the truth of the matter was I'm, I was going to see my father in the hospital because he's very sick. And, you know, it has got to a point where I was like, you're ignoring all of my <laughs> cues and I don't want to talk about it. But okay, you want to talk about it? Let's talk about it. Like, you keep asking? Fine. Let's get into the nitty gritty. Like, what do you what do you know about long-term care, you know? Right. And clearly he was like, oh, I definitely should not have... Yeah, like gone down this conversation path. Yeah, but I, it is it is difficult. I think both for the driver and for the passenger to know where that line is, and we don't make it clear. We don't make it clear what they are supposed to provide to provide that kind of service. Yeah, and I think what it is that they're supposed to provide is this kind of invisible and impossible to, to determine emotional labor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like reading the person in your car and trying to suss out. Is this just how they are? Do they want to talk? Do they not want to talk? Yeah. What are they expecting? On Mad Men, when Peggy Olsen, it's her first day being Don Draper's uh, secretary or assistant, Joan tells her what the men are actually looking for is somewhere between a waitress, a nurse, and a housewife. So they want you to, you know, service with a smile, bring them what they need, sort of be kind of a wife to them in a kind of way. Yeah. But it's clear that they are performing tasks that are that go way above and beyond, you know, book my appointments, yes, do this, make copies kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And there was this viral article by Gemma Hartley published in Bazaar, and she gave a lot of really good examples of um, an emotional labor imbalance. So for Mother's Day, she wanted a cleaning service for the house. And um, she asked her husband, so she, her husband and two kids live in this house, and she wanted to not be the manager of the household for a day. She wanted to her husband to get quotes from cleaning services, to do the research and the vetting and the scheduling, all of that stuff. And the house cleaning was a bonus, something that needed to be done. But the real gift was being free of the emotional labor it entailed. But her husband, whom she adores and loves and likes and is a feminist ally, she frequently describes him as that, sort of kept waiting around for her to change her mind to a simpler gift, like a gift card or something. And it wasn't until the day before Mother's Day, he called one service, um, heard the price, and decided it was too high, and decided he would clean the bathrooms instead. Um, Okay, pause. First (laughs) of all, if they're the kind of couple that have it, if they are the kind of couple that's in a financial situation where, you know, calling a cleaning service was in the cards, it's such a lesser gift to have someone, a non-professional do it for you. That's all I'm saying. Yes. So beyond the, the conversation of like him, his misstep. Right. Also, <laughs> ha- having your husband clean the bathtub is not a good gift. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> um, and he he kind of presented the question to her like, do you really want to pay this much for cleaning? Or I, I could just do it. I mean, I could do it. And um, she she tried to get him to understand it totally misses the point of what she wanted, which is for him to do what she would have done. And that is investigate all the options, get recommendations from friends, handle the scheduling. And he did end up doing it. Um, but when uh, Hartley, the woman who wrote this article, when she passed by him to put away like his clothes that he had left on the floor, she tripped over some gift wrapping he'd left out for two days and then went to the kitchen and like retrieved a chair to put it away. And her husband was like, all you had to do was ask. And she responded, that's the point. I don't want to have to ask. And she later tried to walk him through the concept of emotional labor. And she she wrote about how it was such a fine line to present it in such a way that um, didn't come off to him or uh, he didn't see it as an attack on his personal character. And again, like this episode was kind of a revelation for me because this was a very big thing in my house. In my house, you you didn't have negative emotions um, because that would upset my dad. And so now I have a really hard time expressing emotions and communicating about things that upset me. And this is like 
come all full circle to calls problems with my dad who's like, you never communicate with me. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> yeah, remember how I wasn't allowed to be sad as a kid? Um, and uh, yeah, again, women are the drama queens, right? Anyway, uh, Haley Swenson over at Slate argues that emotional labor is not the correct term for what Hartley is describing. And in fact, most of what people call emotional labor we're not giving it, we're not calling it by the correct name. She thinks a lot of these things are better described as maybe mental load or clerical labor or domestic labor or educational labor. Um, And she points out that sociologists might refer to some of this as maternal gatekeeping or setting the terms for the appropriate ways for housework and parenting to be done, which is no good for anyone. Um, According to Swenson, when we say emotional labor, what we mean is patriarchy. And I I thought about this a lot, um, and I, I kind of agree, but I also think it is useful to have a term for this that a lot of women connected with, this thing that we're all kind of doing. Yeah, I, I sort of think both can be true. I mean, clerical labor does not, or domestic labor does not describe, you know, some of the examples that you led the show with, you know, letting someone vent or understanding when someone is upset and knowing how to perceive that and knowing how to deal with it. I think that as women, so much of what we talk about when we talk about emotional labor is emotional, is about per- like percepting and and sort of knowing how to deal with people in an emotional way. And, you know, that's not clerical work. Like, clerical work is being asked to make the copies because you're the woman or something like that, right? Yeah. I think that's, I think what what, how I think of emotional labor, I think is so different where it's, Maybe mental load is is the right term, but again, so much of it is emotional. Like when sex workers are talking about what they have to do, that's not clerical work. That's that is emotional. Being expected to yeah. be sweet and charming and loving and like listen to the story that you really could give two shits about, yeah. as if it's the most interesting story in the world, right? Mm-hmm. These things are emotional tasks in a kind of way, and yeah. I think that we do need to have an explicit understanding of of their value as such because they're not valued and they, I, 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 I almost actually, I'm, I'm, as I'm saying this, I'm figuring out why I don't like this because calling emotional labor, at least to me, clerical work or mental load divorces it from what I see as the, um, as the emotionally charged nature of the work. And I think that just plays into the idea that emotional work, because we are so often associate it with women, we don't put value on it. And so I think by saying, yeah, it is emotional, and guess what? Emotional can be labor too, and that labor should be compensated and affirmed, and when you do it, you should be thanked or whatever. Yeah. I think that by taking the emotion out of it, I almost think that it's we should acknowledge it as emotional and then affirm it as such and, and attach the word labor to it because emotional stuff is hard. It takes work, you know? People yeah. aren't born being emotionally literate. It takes work, and... We need to acknowledge that. The reason why I like that term, emotional labor, is because it seems to acknowledge that. Yeah. One of the things people often respond to a conversation about emotional labor with is, well, ladies, if you don't want to do it, then don't do it. But we can't really check out. And even if we could, again, that's not really the point. Um, That's not a healthy relationship. And um, another, another common refrain, as kind of illustrated by that story we just spoke about, um, you just had to ask, but mm. again. <laughs> so there's this great comic by this uh, artist, Emma. I think her last name might be Clit. Uh, at least that's what her website is, emmaclit.com. And it really, it really kind of explores this. And basically, it describes her being in a relationship, and she's making dinner, and she's making dinner, and then the, the you know the stove is boiling over, and this is happening, and that's happening, and everything turns into a mess. And her husband comes in and he's like, you should have asked if you needed help. And she sort of charts that phrase, you should have asked, why didn't you ask, to this idea that, listen, when you say, when you tell someone you should have asked, you are basically deeming them the project manager of the household. And being the project manager takes more work. And so basically what you're saying is, you are the person in charge here and I am the underling. I'm happy to do what you want, but you need to assign me to things. Otherwise, I won't do them. And that's not an equal balance of, of labor. Even if you are, I happen to think that when people say, oh, why didn't you ask? They don't actually want to help because if you wanted to help. I mean, I pull the, you should have asked 
all the time and I don't actually want to do something. So, you know, (laughs) don't play a player because I know what's up. But if you wait to be asked to help out around your own household, you are saying that you are the underling and the person who is doing the asking is the project manager or the boss. And that, that, that alone does not illustrate an equal balance of labor. Right. And there's another quote from the Meta Belter thread on why no isn't an option. Um, Sometimes, especially when vulnerable children and elderly are involved, caregivers who are overwhelmingly women get trapped as the final decision makers. Everyone else has been able to say no, but the woman who is the caregiver, her no is treated as the worst of all the no's possible, visible in a way that the rest of the no's from the people and society around her who failed to help, so she finally had to say no, is held as a judgment on her. A judgment with punishment. Social isolation, the withdrawal of practical support, down to outright misogynistic attacks because she's a, quote, such a cold bitch. Yes. Uh, Yes, yes, yes. I've seen it a million times. It's true. I think that as women, one of the words that we, like, just can't say without some sort of harsh judgment is no. If someone asks you to do something and you're like, no, I can't, just, I mean, honestly, people who are listening— Try saying no to shit you don't actually want to do and see how people react to it. Because people react very strongly when a woman says no. And I think when it comes to household tasks, especially when you're when you opt out of that, I think that people really hold you to a really harsh standard. Yeah. Yeah. And another common argument that really, really bothers me. Um uh, those things are pointless. So um pe- people like to get fixated on gift cards or birthday cards or gifts. And uh, and a lot of people who say, well, let's stop talking about emotional labor, say um, those are a waste of time. But it's (laughs) it's the thought that counts, right? And um, it's showing someone you care, whether with a card or gift or however that translates to you. I personally prefer drinks and food or some kind of fun thing. But it's thinking about the other person. It's remembering that. It's the the work that goes behind, I mean, coming up with gift ideas is generally not easy, in my, in my opinion. Um, and uh, those things are the, the social glue that hold together relationships and communities. And maybe in isolation, one or two of these things dropped doesn't matter, but all of them? Yeah. And think of it another way. Could you really, if you had a family and had kids, could you really say, oh, well, gifts are pointless. Yeah. So when it's Christmas time, and because you've opted out of this pointless exchange of gifts. Yeah. And yeah, I think, I mean, this, this, this was my household a little bit, where my mom was the one who made sure that we all had a nice Christmas, a nice birthday. Yeah. My dad was totally the dad who, like, snuck his name on the card. Half yeah. the time my mom would write it, and, you know, yeah. that was the way it was. Mm-hmm. And if my mom had not been around, I don't think my dad would have get, gotten anybody a gift ever. And that was just a task that completely fell to her yeah. on that as a man, he was just able to opt out of. Hopefully, hopefully these days, I think with changing gender norms and gender roles, I hope that that is changing for, for heterosexual parents. Yeah. But I, I know a lot of friends that would say the same thing, that when it came to the little, the little things that parents do that make their kids feel like their parents care— or makes them feel special. That was the mo- that was their mom, and their dad just sort of was sort of around for it. Yeah. So so improvements, improvements. Um, we're gonna take a pause for a quick break, and then we're gonna be right back with more talk about emotional labor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So gender sociologist Dr. Lisa Hoover said, quote, in general, we gender emotions in our society by continuing to reinforce the false idea that women are always naturally and biologically able to feel, express, and manage our emotions better than men. This is not to say that some individuals do not manage emotion better than others as part of their own individual personality, but I would argue that we still have no firm evidence that this ability is biologically determined by sex. At the same time, and I would argue because it is not a natural difference, 
We find all kinds of ways in society to ensure that girls and women are responsible for emotions, and then men get a pass. So I actually have an anecdotal, but I think correct, theory about this, which is that, of course, there is not a biological grounding for women being better at manage, managing their emotions, but I think that we are, we are taught that our emotions and the emotions of others are, th- like, like, that's our business, right? And, you know, think about shows like Sex and the City, where it's four friends sitting around trying to parse a text message a guy sent, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's ingrained in women from an early, early age that you should be talking about how you feel. And not just that, you should be talking about how the people around you feel, especially men. And, you know, there aren't a lot of shows out there where it's a guy parsing how a woman is feeling. I think that we grow up as women with the just tacit understanding that, one, you have to understand your emotions. So talk to your friends about how you're feeling, you know, write in your journal about how you're feeling, whatever, however it expresses itself. Sometimes I think in a healthy way, sometimes not in a healthy way, but it's important to think about how you're feeling and talk about it with your friends, blah, blah, blah. Two, we tell women it is important to parse, even if it's a guess, parse the minutiae of how men and, and, and other people in your orbit are feeling. And so when you have, you know, magazine articles that are like, 10 ways to please your man, what's he thinking, that kind of thing, yeah. you know, the, the old trope of asking a man after sex, you know, what are you thinking right now? I think that we are early on ingrained that it is our job to not just understand our own emotions, but understand the emotions of those in our orbit. And I don't think men feel the same way. And I saw, I saw this really great tweet recently that said, a man who is only in touch with his own emotions is not actually sensitive, right? Because yeah. if you were actually sensitive, you would be like women are kind of forced to be, which is that thinking about the other people's needs, how other people are doing, how are they feeling, what are they thinking, what do they need, and your own. But I think that we ask so little of men, emotionally speaking, that if a man is in touch with his own emotions, like that's good enough in a kind of way. Yeah. And I would say probably most of us, if you had to stereotypically think of the more emotional sex, you would say women. And that's something that we see over and over again, where like if a woman expresses emotion, she's being emotional. We just have this like assumption that women, they they are the more emotional sex and that men are not. Um, so there's probably a lot of that that's in the mix as well. Yeah. And I, I describe myself as emotional. I'm, an, I'm a very emotional person. Yeah. I don't think it's a bad thing. And I think that the reason why I'm emotional is because it's taken a lot of work to get to a place in my life where I can identify very clearly and feel very clearly my emotions. Mm-hmm. And I'm really proud of that work. And I think getting to understand yourself emotionally and others emotionally is something that we, you know, emo- emotional literacy. Like, I, I wasn't born with it, but it's a skill. And I, I choo- it's a skill I choose to work on and refine. And I think that we, when we say that women are emotional— I think what we actually mean is, oh, women have been up to the task of flexing their emotional literacy muscles, and men have never been asked to. So I think when we say women are emotional, what we actually mean is, oh, women understand the work that goes into being emotionally aware of your own feelings and emotionally literate. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, Over at Huffington Post, Christine Hutchinson, who is a therapist and the executive editor for Psyched in San Francisco magazine, wrote about her observations when counseling hetero couples. And she wrote, quote, When I work in therapy with heterosexual couples, the disparity of training each gender receives in emotional management is stark. Often the woman is aware of her male partner's needs and feelings at the expense of her own, whereas the male partner struggles to identify and understand both his, his own and his partner's emotions. He has been taught that it is either dangerous, not manly, or not his job to feel and respond to feelings, including his own. It's tragic. Uh, I could honestly, I, could, I mean, I could talk all day, but I think that I, I want to note that. So that's annoying and burdensome in regularish relationships. But if you take that to its ultimate location, it can be really toxic. A man who 
does not feel any responsibility to navigate or understand his own emotions, that can be really toxic to the point where it's dangerous. Yeah. And I think, you know, we have these men who are feeling intense feelings and they have no clue how to navigate them. And so they take those feelings out on other people or they burden other people with them or in the like ultimate perversion of that they you know they harm others because yeah. they don't understand their own feelings and have and, and like are not up to the challenge of like navigating their own feelings and so in room in a in a healthy-ish romantic relationship having a partner who is not taking responsibility for their feelings is annoying but i think the ultimate perversion of that can be really dangerous so not not just like oh this relationship isn't working out but actually dangerous oh yeah Absolutely. Um, And she also talked about um, when male clients tell her that um, their partners blew up at them or that something came out of nowhere. uh, And she she would wonder if it really had or perhaps that the woman in these relationships had been communicating and the men who had never really been expected to listen or respond didn't listen to or respond. <laughs> it's the dishes again, Bridget. I know. When are we going to get to read your? Was it thirty pages? 30 You're pages. thirty pages on the dishes. I do. You're the Martin Luther of dishes. <laughs> I could just nail it on the podcast studio door. Um, and despite what it may sound like, kind of going off what you were saying, Bridget, this is definitely a case of the patriarchy hurts everyone. Studies have found that not only do men have less meaningful relationships but that widowers face a far tougher time adjusting to their new single status and have higher rates of mental disorders and suicides. Divorced men cope more poorly than divorced women as well, and both have been attributed to the fact that they don't have meaningful contact with their family and friends. A Harvard study found an 82% higher risk of heart disease in isolated men when compared to those that have stronger, meaningful relationships. And another study from the New England Research Institute found that for 66% of the men surveyed, their wives were their main source of social support. And the study concluded, quote, clearly subtracting a wife greatly increases a man's risk of isolation. And it's fair to say there are a lot of things that factor, uh, factors that play there, but um, I would love to see what the numbers are for women. How many women rely almost entirely on their spouse for their primary social support? Um. A lot of examples people gave when they uh, were talking about the kind of the emotional labor that they do for the their husband or significant other was um, having to keep up with that person's family now, like not just your own your own family's birthdays and anniversaries or whatever, but having to keep up with your husband's or significant other their family now. Yeah, I remember someone telling me that they were. It was a, mar- a married couple who I'm friends with. They're going to hear this and think, thank you for airing my dirty laundry on the podcast. But it was her husband's mother's birthday, and her husband didn't do jack shit, didn't get a gift, didn't do anything. And somehow it fell on her that because the mother had not been given a gift, rather than thinking, oh, my son dropped the ball, it was, you didn't you didn't remind him, you didn't, you know, buy a gift, you didn't do this. Mm-hmm. And the way that... I think that's probably true for a lot of a lot of families where when you become someone in a in a you know partnership like that you now have double responsibility. Yeah. You know? Mhm. Um I know it's my mom is usually calling my dad's family. Um so if you if you do go off of like well women are biologically better at this because I That's what science says, right? So why should men even try? There is no science to bear this out. Research has found that emotion-related work is tied to gender construction rather than sex. Um, And here's another quote from the Metafilter that I loved. It's in all caps. So just put that emphasis on my my reading of it. Being soft and comforting and nurturing is really hard work. It is not something that comes naturally just because I identify as female. It takes effort and time, and it is exhausting and draining. Yes. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. And also, outside of the context of a romantic relationship, if you were doing the work of being comforting and soft and a good listener, blah, 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 in a workplace, we should acknowledge that that is extra work that you're doing, whether it's compensated or not or valued or not. It is work. Yes. It's work. 
We're not just good at being, you know, I mean, I don't know how many dumb jokes I've had to laugh at in meetings that I didn't think was funny, but <laughs> you, you do that because you're, that's what we're socialized to do, and it is work. One thing I kept coming across, too, is that since women who we've been trained to not make men feel inferior, and since a lot of these dudes are good dudes, um, and we don't want to make them feel like we're attacking them, we are having trouble finding a good way to approach it, which may lead to women blowing up um, or becoming overly critical or continuing in silence. Um, and women who do try to broach the topic with the men in their life find that they become defensive or avoidant or even make fun of the women for their desire to have the conversation at all. Well, kind of going off of that, I think if men don't see emotional labor, if they think they live in a house with the magic birds from Cinderella where this stuff all just gets done by pixie dust and, and like, angel wings and, like, no one's actually doing it, if this labor is invisible to them— how do you broach the subject? Yeah. You know, if, if 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 someone that you live with doesn't just thinks that his doctor's appointments get made by magic, <laughs> he doesn't know a person does it, how can you even sit down and broach the conversation of why you don't think it's fair? Yeah. Yeah. You have to have like a, a starting place for the conversation to happen. Um, and I did find that this whole thing extends to the bedroom, to sex, um, or whenever, wherever you're having your sex, if it's not in the bedroom. Uh, so, like, take faking orgasms. It speaks to the fact that we're still perceiving sex in a male-centric way and in a way that most, um, uh, we don't want to upset the male ego. And so, ladies be faking. Ladies be faking. Yeah, be faking. How many women out there are faking orgasms, Annie? A 2011 study found that 79% of respondents faked an orgasm during penetrative vaginal sex more than half the time. Wow. Yeah. That's, a lot, that's a lot of moaning and groaning and oohing and aahing. We should all be getting Academy Awards. <laughs> a lot of Meryl Streep's out there. <laughs> really? <laughs> 25% faked it more than 90% of the time. And one of the main reasons given for faking it, 87%, was to boost the man's self-esteem. I would love to see the numbers on this. One, for um, same-sex couples— Two, for men, are men who are having sex with women, are they faking orgasms? I bet they're not. I would love to see the data on that. I would as well. And also, um, a listener sent us an article about how um, we describe bad sex and how it's completely different for men and women. For men, it means, like, I don't know, I didn't orgasm as quickly as I thought. But for women, it means it wasn't painful. Yeah, yeah, so I definitely want to come back to that topic for sure. Um, yeah, I've had some, <laughs> I've had some situations where it's like, oh, that was bad. And by bad, I mean it was active. It, it was he was doing me active discomfort, right? <laughs> and when it was over, I was relieved, <laughs> right? So not, yeah, <laughs> yes, it's a little different. Um, and I would like to say about this study about the faking orgasms, it was seventy-one straight women. So, limited in that way. But I do think that it probably speaks to, we can probably extrapolate a bit. I think so. I think so. All right. Well, we have a little bit more to say, but we're going to take one last quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So we're all riled up about this emotional labor thing. What mm -hmm. can we do? Okay, so relationships are hard work, for sure. It takes two people working at it. Um, and to have a truly egalitarian relationship, or as close as we can get to one, we need to find a way to split up the emotional labor aspect of it. Some things I read suggested identifying the emotional labor um, that your partner or whoever it is in your life has done over the past week and call, of, call all of those things out or think of ways to express your appreciation. Um, think of ways that you can contri contribute more to achieve a more equitable situation. And it does go back to the conversations, the many we've had about dishes, and the point that some people are more okay with leaving things around for a bit and others aren't. And this can lead to an imbalance in chores. So you, you might have to learn to work with that if your partner is on the opposite side of the spectrum than you are. 
And there is this other quote I wanted to mention from the MetaFilter thread. Um, Women consider emotional labor to be the backbone of relationships, not the entry fee. So a lot of women in this thread pointed out that when they first started dating someone, he did do all of these things. He did remember the birthday or do something special just because or go out of his way to make to do this emotional work. But then once they got married or um, just were more settled into the relationship, that went away because mm. they had, you know, gotten what they... The, the, the emotional labor was just the, the means to an end. Oh, that's... I know you didn't mean it that way, but that's, a gr- that's such a gross way to think about it. It is. Oh, I was a functional human and did all the tasks that functional humans need to complete just to win your affection now that I got it. Yep. I'm done. Yep. That makes me sad. It is. It is sad. I do think that that is a different... If we can change the the way we look at relationships, I think that that is a very beneficial conversation to have because I do... I see men and women looking at relationships in different ways. And I've kind of gotten that vibe. Are you saying women are from Venus, men are from Mars, Annie? You know, Bridget, (laughs) maybe that is what I'm saying. Maybe that is. Maybe I need to revisit that. (laughs) Uh, Another tip, another tip that uh, probably shouldn't need to be said, but we're going to say it, is listening. Actually listening. Yeah, listen to your partner, listen to their needs. You know, I think... Kind of like what you were saying about how when women blow up at them, men sometimes say, oh, it came out of nowhere, blah, blah, blah. But actually, it seems like she might have been saying the same thing over and over again in different ways and then got very frustrated that she was not being heard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is something that starts at a really young age. Studies show that by three years old, kids recognize gender. So by modeling different behavior, we can change things for younger generations. Um, A quote from Dr. Michelle Ramsey, the Associate Professor of Communications and Sciences at Penn State Berks. Um, Quote, for parents, this means making sure that one spouse does not do more of that type of labor than the other. Speaking in terms of how emotional labor is currently divided, girls will hopefully learn not to expect to have to do that labor, and boys will hopefully learn not to expect females to do that labor for them. Children watching parents share that emotional labor will be more likely to be children who expect that labor to be shared in their own lives. So we need to start early and redefine some gender roles. To me, some of this sounds so basic, but maybe maybe people don't know. Yeah, maybe not. People don't know. Um, Another tip I have, if you are in a workplace uh, and you find that, you know, women are doing a lot more of the emotional labor in a professional setting, things like office birthday parties, you know, getting that birthday card— any of the little things that aren't someone's job that they end up doing, try to find a more equitable equitable way to do that, you know, a chore wheel, something like that, you know. If one person is always washing everyone's mug in the kitchen and it's not their job, try to figure out why that is. You know, if, if you're someone who is a decision maker in a workplace, you have the power to make a change and, and have that not be the case. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so I hope that... Um this episode is useful to to you listeners. It was certainly useful for me because I I hadn't really been able to express that. Like, I knew that this was happening. I just didn't really have the words to express it. So um, it was a really eye-opening episode to do the research on for me. Same. It, it's impact—again— this is sort of like our gaslighting episode. It's empowering to have a language, a shared language to understand a lot of the crap we're all dealing with and have been dealing with, maybe without a, a, a way to describe it. Yeah. So I think adding—it sounds so dumb and so basic and so surface, mm-hmm. but being able to have a word to describe something that so many of us are dealing with and sometimes dealing with alone and silently and in a, in a frustrated way, yeah. I think is empowering. I do too. And— um as someone who I've seen so many of my friends' moms get kind of stuck in uh, divorces where they can't leave because they don't have any money. Um, and just to hear them say, like, I wish I had 
gone to work or I'd say something away. And I always feel so frustrated because you were working, like you were raising children and you just weren't getting compensated for it. That's like, don't even get me started. That's a whole other episode. But yes, times 100. Yes. Like we do not value the labor of women. We do not value labor that is associated with women. We do not value domestic labor, labor within the household. The work that you just described that woman doing, if you, if her husband paid for that work outside of the home, do you know how much she would be making? A lot of money. So it is work very clearly and we don't value it and it's, we should. And if she was charging her husband an, in an itemized fashion for all the stuff she did, cooking, cleaning, raising kids, shuttling people places, appointments, she would have so much money if it was compensated. It just happens to not be compensated. Yes. Yep. <laughs> <We've>, Sorry. <laughs> no, I so agree. And I, I like wrote out, I tried to like show, uh, show a woman in my life this where I like wrote out this is how much you would have made per year. You would make so, you would make bank. Yeah. If you, like, if if someone had to hire someone to do this. All the things. Yeah. So definitely we've given ourselves more homework. <laughs> but in the meantime, it's time for listener mail. But <laughs> Oh, Dylan adds that. <laughs> I mean, you could, you could add it in too. Yeah, Dylan, producer Dylan, I, I got you handled. Don't worry about the listener mail sound effect. I'm going to do them from now on. Bridget does all the sound effects from here on out. Okay, so this first one is from Patrice. Um, I just listened to your episode from May 30th on Kim K and appetite suppressants. This one really hit me hard because about a year ago, one of my coworkers started using Isagenics, which is essentially a pyramid scam. One person starts using this meal replacement shake and doing cleanses, and they lose a bunch of weight and feel great, and then they start selling it to their friends and so on. So last year, my coworker got me on it, and you replace two meals a day with these shakes and then only have 100 calorie snacks in between. You did this for five days, and then you did two days of cleanses where you drink this nutrient supplement and are only allowed one apple or one one of their whey snacks to eat throughout the day. After the first day I tried this, I felt a little off and lightheaded, but I was committed to finishing because, one, I wanted to lose the weight and see results, and two, I had already spent the money on these products. So after the first two months of this crazy schedule, I was starting to see results. I lost weight and inches around my waist. So naturally, I ordered more shake powder and cleansing kits. Now I'm the type of person that gets bored with food very easily. And after about another month of this, I was starting to miss food. I felt constantly hungry because I had lowered my calorie intake and I just straight up missed chewing food and all the different flavors that come with it. So I gave up this crazy shake fad. And guess what? I gained all the weight back and then some. Being a person who has been referred to as skinny for most of their life, it was really difficult for me to realize how much weight I had gained. Over the past eight months, I had gotten a new job where I sat at a desk for eight hours a day, and I hadn't been going to the gym with this new schedule. Looking back, I can understand where all this weight came from, but at first it seemed like I gained 10 pounds overnight. None of my clothes fit, and then I made the mistake of stepping on the scale. Being an avid Instagram user, it was difficult to scroll through my feed and see all of these get-skinny-quick solutions being advertised everywhere. I even spiraled into a period of depression because I was so upset at how big I had gotten and not having a flat stomach like all of the, quote, pretty girls on Instagram. Thankfully, I have the amazing support of my boyfriend who reminds me how silly it is to lose my mind over a little bit of weight. He also motivates me to work out and eat better, and it goes to show how important it is to have a good supportive network around you. I also quit following many of the people on Instagram that made me wish I looked like them and started following more body-positive accounts. Seriously, just look up hashtag body positivity and you'll find so many more real accounts and people who are truly trying to make a difference in the way we look at ourselves. Over the last four months, I have become a vegetarian and have been going to the gym and playing tennis and just enjoying life. I don't worry about the number on the scale. We don't even have a scale in my house and I eat to feel good and full. And becoming vegetarian has made me start cooking in the kitchen and using real foods and it's honestly the best decision I have made in a while. I truly wish for all the young women out there to not fall into the trap of these fad diets and meal suppressants or supplements because once you stop, you just feel worse than before you started. Yeah. Um, it, I, I'm someone who at one time would have definitely tried this, have definitely tried something like this. And it, it is, I mean, when you think about it, when you step away, it's, it's so almost disturbing not necessarily this story, but I remember reading back in the like worst days 
for me, I remember reading this tip, and it was watch yourself eat in the mirror. Ooh. Because you were supposed to be disgusted with how you, like, perceived yourself and the fact that you were eating. And it's it's just so upsetting that <laughs> these messages are so powerful, and they're, like, everywhere and prevalent. So I do hope that um, we we move away from that and we learn to— Enjoy life. Yeah, I, what I wanted to point out in this in this letter was that I'm just so happy that it sounds like she's gotten to a place where she has a positive and a healthy relationship with food, where she's cooking at home and using healthy ingredients and eating to eating because food tastes good and it's it's fun to eat and you know eating to feel good. Uh, you should not be repulsed by the idea of you consuming food, which we all need to do to live. Eating. I mean, at least for me, it's it's it, and I think for you as a the host of a food podcast, you <laughs> yeah. know, it should be something that can bring joy. And I'm happy that she's found a place where it sounds like cooking a big vegetarian meal in her kitchen, full of healthy, fresh ingredients, makes her feel good. Yeah, makes me happy. Yeah, Invite us sure. over for dinner, please. Oh, please, <laughs> we'll be there. Our next letter is from Marin. Beautiful name, Marin. M e h e r i n. Gorgeous name. I'm a little behind on episodes, and I just listened to the episode on stalking. First of all, I want to thank you guys for doing an episode on this topic, as it's important and scary. I agree that the media, both fiction and journalism, are complicit in normalizing stalking behaviors. I did, however, want to share my perspective on one of my favorite movies, Love Actually. This movie is about different types of love and how that plays out in our lives. Bridget, you said that the woman who chooses to take care of her brother is vilified, but by whom? Her new suitor seems to understand— it's an example of how her love for her brother outweighs other loves in her life. With Alan Rickman and Emma Thompson's characters, Alan Rickman cheats on her, whether emotionally or physically, we do not know, and it breaks her heart. That is an example of how love can hurt. Just because someone betrays you doesn't negate your love for them. And in the end, we see that she stays with him, but their relationship is strained. The movie does not teach us that cheating is okay. It just shows that, unfortunately, cheating happens. And the most controversial character, the guy with an unrequited crush on Kira Knightley's character, one, he thinks he's, quote, in love with his best friend's partner. He keeps that to himself. He doesn't pursue her. He actively tries to act cold and distant toward her so they don't become close. Two, he takes that creepy video of her at her wedding. This is definitely stalkery and is not okay and shouldn't be romanticized. However, he wasn't the official videography. His videography was creepy, but he didn't ruin their wedding. Three, in the end, he gives that speech on the note cards in order to, quote, explain himself to Juliet after she watches the creepy video that he didn't intend for her to watch and allow him to, quote, get it out of his system so he can move on. I always viewed it as, hey, I've always liked you. I think you're special. And then he left. I don't think it's childish or stalkerish at all. Should Juliet tell her husband about the situation? That's her ethical call, not that guy's. Anywho, I just wanted to share because I feel like our interpretations of the same movie were so different. Keep up the good work, y'all. Uh, Marin, thank you for writing in. It's funny. I actually got a lot of pushback on my strong stances <laughs> on Love Actually. Marin, I got to say, she makes the case very, very well for the movie showcasing different ways that love can play out. I will say that I do... So n no one in the movie shames Laura Linney's character who was taking care of her sick brother. But I feel... So, like, there's not, there's not, it's not a character who was like, oh, how dare you. Mm -hmm. I feel like we as the viewer are meant to see her choice as sad or, or bad. Mm -hmm. Like, like, like Marin is 100% correct. There is not a character in the movie that says, Laura Linney, what are you doing? But I believe that we as the audience are supposed mm -hmm. to say, Laura Linney, you've got this hot guy that makes you jump up and down when he's in your apartment because he's so hot, and you're going to choose your ailing brother. I don't know. That's just my interpretation. Yeah. Actually, Marin is making me want to go back and watch it again. Rewatch. Um... We add it to our ever-growing pile I know. of spinty movies we need to watch. <laughs> Gotta invite Marin. <laughs> we do. I did, I really appreciated how um, several several listeners wrote in and like kind of defending of like a, a favorite movie of theirs. And it is interesting to have like such different takes on, on movies. I, I've been really fascinated reading kind of these really different viewpoints. Um, we, Bridget and I love, we love media and movies if it's not clear. So we could, we could probably have a whole like many side podcast. You know what we should do? I was just thinking it would be so interesting. Get two listeners who have 
drastically different takes on the same movie. So mm-hmm. somebody who thinks Love Actually is the greatest love story of our time and someone who thinks it's garbage and have them both make their case, yes. that'd be hilarious. And then we like... And then, oh, would, would we get to vote at the end? Yes. Anything where I get to judge the opinions of others, I'm so in. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> Perfect. Well, we'll get we'll get to the drawing board on that one. Um, in the meantime, please keep those emails coming. Our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us all over the social means. We're on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You and on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. And thanks, as always, to our producer, Dylan Fagan, and Kathleen Quillian as well. And by the time y'all listen to this, Annie will be an Atlanta road race champion, so early congrats to her. All right. Oh, God. (laughs) 